Hello, and welcome back to The Stakes. I'm Holly Anderson, Director of Politics and News for MTV News. We've got a wide-ranging show for you this week. Coming up, Meredith Graves runs down the dangerous absurdity of America's rape laws and the politicians who write them. Julie Ross continues her journey into the furthest reaches of the internet. Jamie Fuller peeks into the backyards of America's governors. And our poet-in-residence, Marcus Ellsworth, returns to honor Afeni Shakur Davis. But first, we're going to check in with Anna Marie Cox, who has spent the last few days knee-deep in the sludgy trenches of Ted Cruz's campaign. Really sorry for sludgy trenches there, but we're burning off all of our best Cruz material. Bear with us. Let's get to it. If you've been paying even the slightest bit of attention to the slow motion train wreck that has been the Republican nomination process, you have undoubtedly heard the news that on Tuesday, Ted Cruz finally suspended his campaign. Our intrepid senior political correspondent, Anna Marie Cox, was on the ground at the final Cruz event and bore witness to the failed candidate's farewell as it happened. Anna, what did you see? Oh, well, Holly, um, as you know, it was a bittersweet ending for me to witness uh, Ted Cruz's uh, last stand. You know, I was at what, you know, probably was very optimistically first of it billed as a victory rally. Uh, and, you know, it, he's from the uncanny valley and being in the company of his supporters is like being in an alternate universe in some ways uh because it's like the inverse of our own rational universe in that they we have this one thing in common which is everyone in both the rational and ted cruz's universe hates donald trump um and you know talking to people there as they were coming to terms with the fact that uh, Cruz was bowing out, um, you hear a lot of the same arguments you hear from people um, on the progressive left or or rational conservatives um, about what kind of candidate Trump is and what he represents. That was a little bit unnerving almost because these are largely people with whom I disagree about a lot of things, but we, we definitely found some common ground. Um, in their analysis of Trump. Uh, I talked to a few people in the audience, and here is what one woman who, who sort of stood out had to say. Uh, did you see that article uh, written by in down in South America? They said, welcome to our world, where Donald Trump has the makings of a dictator. The way he was bringing out the worst qualities in people, getting them to rally around him, it's like he's going to have his own private army to, to be a bunch of thugs. He's a bad man. I, I mean, literally, he is just not what America's made of. And I'm disgusted with the people who have voted for him. I, I just can't understand how someone like him could get to this position. How did we get here? It, it just seems like nobody understands anything about the country and how it's run. And I feel like we have a generation now of people who... They've lost their values. I mean, look at our media, for God's sakes. Now, granted, even back in the old days, they were pulling a lot of shenanigans, but there was a core of integrity that I, I feel has been lost. And we need to get it back, or we're going to be like South America, we're going to be like Russia, we're going to be like all the other places, and we don't have any place to go. This is it. So you guys are going to have to decide what's important, you know? She's talking about a generation that's lost its value, and I think that's very interesting because Cruz, to me, never really got into the what's up fellow kids of it all. Did you see a lot of young people there? Were there? <laughs> did he have a lot of young volunteers? Were there a lot of young supporters at this? 
Well, uh, there were probably more than you'd expect because it was almost all volunteers. <laughs> there weren't a lot of the general public there, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, there weren't a lot of people just coming in off the street. There weren't a lot of people who were uh, kind of just grassroots Indiana Cruz supporters. So a lot of the room was people who have been with Ted Cruz for a while. I talked to a lot of out-of-state volunteers. I talked to a couple of young men. Uh, they were volunteers for Cruz about whether or not they were going to vote for Trump in the fall. Here's what they had to say. Honestly, no. I, uh, I, I'm very solid in my convictions. You know, I'm conservative, and uh, I don't think Trump is. So. Yeah, I, I have a loyalty to my principles and my God, and not my party, uh, per se. Um, so I, I, I don't feel that I have to vote for my party's nominee. Um, I, I'm not going to vote for someone who I think is going to damage our country. So would you just stay home? There, there are a couple third-party candidates that appeal to me um, that I think would be positive for the country. I mean, they're not going to win, but uh, at least I can say that I didn't just stay home. Wow. <laughs> I heard that um, sort of web searches for Libertarian Party and people joining the Libertarian Party in various states really shot up last night. I, I'm, I bet those two kids were on their phones immediately after I talked to them uh, looking into that. Anna, you were talking about earlier about how this is a bittersweet moment for you. And for those listening who may not know, you wrote very touchingly uh, last week about how you identify with Cruz's particular brand of not quite humanity because you felt that you yourself grew up in kind of a similar situation and mindset. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your piece and what you're going to miss about covering Cruz? Sure. I mean, I I want to be real clear, which is that I don't think that I am also a sociopath. Um, and the fact that I can empathize with Cruz probably suggests that I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but I do have but I do have empathy for him. I think, you know, a lot of people just see the Zodiac killer. I see the child inside the Zodiac killer. Um, and I see a kid, you know, when I think back to my childhood, I was kind of an alienated, nerdy um, unpopular, um, know-it-all, uh, to be frank, too. Like, I was I was the kid who shot my hand up at every time I knew the answer, which was kind of a lot. Um, I took a lot of pride in my grades because I felt like I actually didn't have a lot of else to take pride in, you know? And when I read Ted Cruz's book, which I think is called A Time for Choosing, I think, um, he, he, you know, reminded me of myself. In particular, he tells an anecdote about uh, deciding at one point in junior high, in his case, to not to to stop being unpopular, and he creates a plan to to overcome his unpopularity. And I did the same thing in high school. I had a very kind of intellectual approach to what I thought was maybe an intellectual problem. Uh, and it's it's sort of seeing that parallel between us that gives me, I think again more sympathy maybe than he deserves given you know how repellent his policies are <laughs> and what kind of damage he's done um to the fabric of american polity uh but i do feel it and um but the thing that the, the, there's an upper limit on my empathy um which his conduct at his uh concession uh speech sort of uh, exemplifies which is that 
I just want to emphasize for people who don't realize this, it is really, really strange to give a concession speech and not say it's a concession speech until like the, the second to last paragraph. It's really strange. Like there were people in the audience that didn't know he had conceded, that didn't know he had pulled out of the race. Like all the reporters knew because we you know, got the news over our phones. There were Ted Cruz supporters, like one guy standing next to me. I thought I honestly must have missed like the first line of the speech, maybe. This is a recurring theme in this election to me. And I know that this, again, is not a, a sentiment new to elections, but this The 2016 cycle in particular on both sides of the aisle seems to be running so high on aggressive, almost belligerent resistance to realities of the situation, whether it's (laughs) whether it's Cruz, whether it's the Sanders campaign uh, as talking about how that, you know, no, guys, math really isn't math and we're going to be fine. I, I I'm seeing this from every corner. I think it has to do as far as like how it can happen. I think it has to do other people have diagnosed this before it's the rise of the internet it's the rise of you know echo chambers instead of you know journalism uh people can find whatever facts they want to um to fit the situation and that is disheartening (laughs) to say the least thanks anna it was nice talking to you holly One of the latest additions to the MTV News family is Meredith Graves. While you might know her as the front woman for Perfect Pussy, I like to think of her as the woman who aptly described Ted Cruz as 50 lizards in a bag of skin. This week, she's here to tell us about Oklahoma and the absurdly terrifying state of rape law. Oklahoma courts came to a decision this week that's as confusing as it is alarming, and coincidentally on the topic of things that are both confusing and alarming, it has to do with waking up with a dick in your mouth. In this particular case where Oklahoma state law accidentally decreed that one teenager who sexually assaulted another drunk teenager was innocent, forced oral sex or oral rape, whatever you choose to call it, isn't legally considered rape because the victim was intoxicated. Like, because she was passed out drunk, that made it somehow not rape which sounds fucking crazy, but bear with me. Without understanding the nuances of Oklahoma's rape laws, which like most states read like knitting patterns for human genitals, we would all be jumping up and down and screaming, what do you mean oral sex with a passed out drunk person isn't rape? Because like, duh, that's rape. The incomprehensible weirdness largely stems from the fact that in Oklahoma, penetrative vaginal and anal sex performed on an unconscious person are both considered rape, while oral sex is considered sodomy. And this isn't unique to Oklahoma, by the way. A lot of states weirdly separate oral sex from vaginal and anal sex. Weirder still is that forced oral sex can be considered rape and not sodomy in some cases, those having to do with age, mental capacity, and authority. So since the involved were the same age and neither intoxication nor unconsciousness are named as grounds for calling something rape in Oklahoma, the aforementioned decision turned out to be legal. It's like the one instance where none of the rape laws can apply. It's very much a legal loophole. So no, Oklahoma didn't literally legalize oral rape if the person is intoxicated, as I've seen some people say. They only, you know, failed to provide adequate support for a child who woke up having been orally raped by a peer. And when you put it like that, you realize that even when things are to the letter of the law, they're still a complete fucking nightmare. And speaking of complete fucking nightmares, the upcoming presidential election is sure to be jam-packed with sexual health IEDs from Ted Cruz's now notorious stance against manual stimulation of one's own genitals for fun and profit 
to Donald Trump's declaration that people who seek abortive services should receive some sort of punishment. But sex in this election is like anything else in this election. The statements made are so over the top and so grandiose, it's difficult to assess where any one candidate stands on basic practical issues. Like, okay, we know where you stand on whether or not dildos should be legal, you nut job, but where do you stand on rape and sexual assault? So since the United States doesn't have a universal rape law, legal proceedings and punishment vary from state to state. But rather than give space and attention to victims of sexual assault, a number of current presidential candidates choose to instead focus on the potential for unintended pregnancy implicit in most rapes. Because let's not forget, a wildly disproportionate number of rapes, literally 93.7% or more, according to one accredited source, are committed by men against women which means a wildly disproportionate number of rapes could theoretically result in pregnancy. Recent dropout Ted Cruz, who we should remind ourselves is from Texas, a state with a population of 27 million and only 10 remaining clinics where abortions are performed, says he's hard on rape but refuses to blame the child, by which I presume he means fetus, like how he meant to say hoop but came out with basketball ring. He believes in the death penalty for the worst child rapists. But unfortunately, that usually comes up in the context of violent and transphobic bathroom laws. Laws that he believes will keep grown men out of women's bathrooms. Worth noting that in states where those laws have been put into action, it's actually resulted in grown men going into women's bathrooms under the guise of protecting women. So Cruz votes to defund Planned Parenthood because he believes they're selling baby parts. And his now former running mate, Carly Fiorina, is best remembered as the fucking nutcase who dragged unsuspecting children on a field trip without notifying their parents and propped them up on stage in a bid to pro-life voters. Our newest Republican dropout, John Kasich, fought to defund Planned Parenthood during his tenure as governor of Ohio, believing it should be defunded nationwide. As some have wisely said... Shouldn't these candidates be legally obligated to continue their campaigns against their wishes? Maybe after a couple of invasive medical procedures where a doctor describes to them the physical and emotional risks of aborting their campaign before it comes to term? Maybe protesters could line up outside campaign headquarters shouting in their faces that ending a presidential campaign too soon can lead to breast cancer. God bless future dictator Donald Trump, who's just winging it as he goes along because he probably doesn't even know what hole the baby comes out of. Bernie Sanders has a lifetime record of being pro-choice, in addition to supporting family planning services, which, if you need a reminder, provide way more than just abortions. It's not very interesting, to be honest. He's just sort of always supported abortions being legal, which is like bragging that you didn't do anything racist today. Like, you've met the bare minimum of human decency, moving right along. Hillary Clinton held a pro-life stance as recently as 2008, which may sound like it was a long time ago, but is actually not very long ago at all. And even now, she mostly regards abortion and family planning as a woman's right to choose, instead of saying what needs to be said, which is safe and legal abortion on demand without apology. So basically, you get one life and one body, and over the course of your lifetime, however long that may be, you could rape or be raped. You could be pregnant or you could get someone pregnant. You could be harmed or killed by a traumatic pregnancy, etc. ad nauseum. So what I'm trying to say is rape, pregnancy, and abortion are interrelated. And if candidates' positions on rape aren't explicitly clear, which they oftentimes aren't because a lot of these conservative candidates still believe stuff like there's no such thing as marital rape, you can glean a lot from their views on abortion. Seeing as pregnancy resulting from rape is the hot topic most candidates touch on to justify their Neanderthal position on sexual assault.
So I'm not explicitly telling you to vote with your junk, but I am saying it's not the worst idea. This is your body, and only you should be responsible for deciding what's best for it. And since what's best for it generally isn't following through with a dangerous unplanned pregnancy or waking up with a literal dick in your mouth, you're going to want to vote against people who believe the government knows more about how your junk works than you. When it comes to rape and abortion, Ted Cruz and John Kasich and dudes like them are dicks, and they're lobbying for positions where they'd be allowed to speak for us. All of us. Which is to say, if you don't want to wake up with a dick in your mouth speaking for you and have it be perfectly legal, vote for a candidate whose views on abortion reflect a stance that rape is, in all instances, unequivocally wrong. That was MTV News correspondent Meredith Graves. You're listening to The Stakes. We'll be right back. It's very difficult to introduce a conversation about emoji without falling back on some very terrible puns and slipping in a reference to hard-eyed cats or whatever. That's probably because it's 2016 and emoji stopped being a weird novel thing years and years ago. They're everywhere, always. And it's precisely this ubiquity that led deputy political editor Julianne Ross to ask a very serious question. Are emoji actually a language? She reached out to linguist Neil Cohn of the Visual Language Lab to find out. So I have definitely had entire text conversations with my friends that are made up of emojis. Um, And I can understand what people are saying with just a string of pictures. And we have these like long running jokes that are just emojis. Um, Would you call that communication a kind of language? And if not, what are we doing? Uh, I would not call it language necessarily. Uh, Language requires uh, three kind of main ingredients. It requires uh, the conveyance of meaning in a particular modality. A modality is just a channel of information. So right now that channel for me is sound because I'm producing it out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, in emoji, that uh, modality is graphics. So emoji have the meaning conveyed through modality, uh, but they lack a grammar. And that grammar is a set of rules by which we string them together uh, to make it constrained such that some sequences are good and some sequences are not so good. So in the context of emoji, uh, there are kind of conventionalized uh, patterns that might occur, but they're not sophisticated as much to be a full grammar necessarily. Right. And so if they're not a form of language in itself, it still seems that they're filling a gap that we have in language. And as more and more of our communication becomes digital, um, they can, you know, they can help signify tone or they can, you know, let you know if something is serious or if someone's just joking or if someone's flirting with you. Absolutely. So even though emoji might not be a complete language, they are still very useful for communication. And I think they are a nice reminder that our communicative system is not just about language versus not language. Um, or, you know, it's only important when things are language versus, you know, the things that are quote-unquote not languages are unimportant. For example, um, we gesture when we talk, right? Uh, and that gesture through lots of research has been shown to uh, provide very valuable information 
uh, for communication, even though you might not be aware of it. Uh, it's a little less overt than the recognition of the speech. Gestures provide very important information, and emoji have that sort of function uh, in communication. Uh, so they are adding and supplementing uh, additional meaning. This sort of multimodal communication, using multiple modalities or channels to communicate at once, is part and parcel of the way that human beings communicate generally. We gesture when we talk. We can draw things and use text at the same time. We can draw things and talk. Uh, and in the case of emoji, they're now making up for the fact that we can't see each other and get these additional cues. So digitally, you're then communicating with graphics and text in just the same way that we would with speech and gesture. Uh, because really, the way we communicate is not just with language and, you know, that's it. It's we use multiple channels all at once. And that is how, as a species, we're really designed to communicate. And as even more of our communication becomes written and digital, do you think that emoji have the potential to ever approach being a language? Could they ever capture that grammar, the level of nuance that we have? Well, I think that uh, uh, they won't necessarily. And I think that there's certain limitations to them. For example, uh, there's a group of people who identifies which emoji will be used and which aren't. And actual languages need to have the flexibility to be developed by the users themselves in kind of novel uh, ways. Emoji are also limited because of technology, because essentially they stay as a one unit uh, per one meaning sort of conveyance, the same way that we might think of writing systems. But that's simply not the way that uh, graphics work. Graphics, on the other hand, are used combinations of things together. So the example I like to give is that if I want to convey an emoji uh, that my brother went surfing, I have to say, pick a face to represent my brother, and then also pick that little surfing emoji. Um, but if I was to actually draw this, I would just stick that face on a surfing body, um, and I would be able to convey it all in one image. Uh, and that's more natural to the way that graphics communicate. So uh, uh, I, I think that the technological limitations of the emoji are just going to be limited that way. If we overcome those technological limitations, they'll, they'll just start looking like other visual languages. And that's to say that it's not that emoji are, you know, are, by calling them not a language, they're being limited. We already have visual languages in the world that are uh, much more complex than emoji are. It's just that emoji are being used in uh, this sort of uh, daily conversation now. Well, thank you so much. I feel a lot more confident in using smiley faces in my text now. <laughs> <laughs> well, me too. Uh, winky face, right at you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for talking to us. Great. Thank you very much. That was Julianne Ross speaking to linguist Neil Cohn. You can find more of his work at visuallanguagelab.com. It's been a busy week for Julie and a busy week for national news. We sent her back into the studio with our own Jamie Fuller to make sure she was caught up on all the news she might have missed. So I am so tired of talking about Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. Um, and Jamie, you have such an amazing repository of random political knowledge. Is there anything you can give me as a palate cleanser? 
Well, the repository of knowledge comes only because I, too, have to pay attention to Donald Trump and Ted Cruz all the time. You need a release. <laughs> yes. But uh, if we go up to Maine, the governor up there, Paula Page, has a new dog, which is very exciting and uh, is a nice bit of good news from his department because he's mostly known for saying let's say outrageous uh things i okay, think like last <laughs> i i've definitely I've, I've heard of this guy but i don't like i'm not an expert in paula page so well he says uh, outrageous things so frequently it'd be hard to catalog all of them but just a few weeks ago he was giving a speech at a college and as you'd expect there were college students in the back who had signs that weren't saying particular nice things about him uh and he was so upset that he just walked off stage and said, thanks, idiots. Like an adult, <laughs> like like a politician yep. leading uh, people. <laughs> and uh, one of the more infamous things he said recently was uh, he was talking about uh, drug addiction in the state. Very serious topic, which quickly got overshadowed uh, when he started saying that drug dealers were coming and, and impregnating uh, the white women in Maine. It sounds a lot like Donald Trump. <laughs> but, 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 his, but his dog, uh, which, and by the way, uh, Paula Page, big Trump fan. Not okay. that I needed to tell not you that. Not surprising, not surprising. Um, but he got his adorable new Jack Russell Terrier mix, which he adopted. Um, but the, the newsy part of that, newsy in, in quotes, is that he named it Vito. So like... The fact that he adopted this dog made, like, I wanted to like him more, but then he <laughs> told me that he named it Vito, and I just I yeah, hate no. him all over again. And it has symbolism uh, somewhat because Paula Page uh, holds the record, which I'm sure he's very proud of, for having the most vetoes in Maine history because he, there's lots of things he doesn't like in the world, including much of the legislation passed by the so now legislature. This, this poor little innocent puppy is, like, bearing this... This weight of, yes, it of is. Paula Page's legacy. <laughs> it is a political Politi- symbol. Politicizing a poor dog. <laughs> but it's not even that. Uh, his spokesperson put out this statement saying that uh, the name Vito was chosen because this dog, this, this poor dog that just wants to play catch, is the mascot of good public policy, defender of the main people, and protector of hardworking taxpayers from bad legislation. I'm just like imagining him like going for walks with his dog and just like shouting like Vito, Vito down the streets of Maine and people I, getting very confused. I mean, like, like, oh, what legislation is Paula Page shutting down now? Well, no, and I just don't imagine bad like the dog ate your bad legislation jokes. Like, yeah. they're coming, they're coming. But this isn't the only pet news in the past There's couple weeks. There's more pet There's news? There's more pet news in the I, state This politics. is my favorite kind of political news now. <laughs> um, in Louisiana, the governor just got a chicken coop. Uh, a chicken coop. At the governor's mansion. And, and the color scheme of the chicken coop matches the governor's mansion. So I did not realize that chicken coops were so elaborate that they would have a color scheme. Like you paint I, the inside of the coop? I, I clearly am not experienced with keeping if you're chickens. Gonna, if you're going to put a chicken coop next to a mansion, like that chicken coop better have a color scheme. That's or maybe he was inspired. The Virginia governor, Terry McAuliffe, also has a chicken coop. Who knows? Like maybe we're, maybe we're starting a craze. Maybe Andrew Cuomo going to get a chicken coop in Albany. Is this how politicians like make themselves more relatable by getting chickens? <laughs> I don't you, understand. You get the dog, this. you get the chicken. Like yeah. someone's gonna get like a cute rabbit. Is it a rescue chicken? Do they have rescue I don't chickens? Know. I bet I they do. I hope they do. Like yeah. there's maybe like the rescue rescue llamas that they need to keep like 
There are rescue llamas? Well, no. I'm, I'm just assuming that llamas keep running away. There was another llama that ran oh, away. Right, right. Yeah. I'm assuming if it's so easy for a llama, which is very large to get away, that they're just chickens running away everywhere. chickens all over the place waiting to be adopted by local politicians. (laughs) Who just just really want you to like them with their rescue chicken. Well, it's it's working. I kind of like the chicken owners a little more. I don't know much about their politics, but I probably would learn and be like, oh, no, no, this is is not a good thing. Okay, well, I feel a little better about the state of the world now, so thank you for that. Cute animals make everything better. I'll look for the the pet llama for next time. (laughs) Awesome. That just about does it for this week on The Stakes. But before we go, we're going to close things out again with an offering from our very own poet-in-residence, Marcus Ellsworth. Like many of us this week, he was touched by the passing of Afeni Shakur Davis, whom you might know as Tupac's mother. Here's Marcus with his ode to all of the mothers in the movement for Black liberation. The movement for liberation is a child of many mothers. From Mamie Till wanting the world to see what they did to her baby Emmett, to Sabrina Fulton vowing justice for her Trayvon and every other mother's child. To Afeni Shakur fighting for the future of her people, demanding a better world for black children before she even knew that her child, her black prince, her Tupac, would become an icon. And when violence took him from the world, from her, she called on us to end the bloodshed with the voice of a mother. Rest well, Afeni Shakur. So many mothers lead us unbowed toward freedom because they know the cost of leaving this world unchanged. From every child of this long revolution, we see you, pointing us down a better path. From every child of this movement, we thank you for calling on us to be moved. Our many mothers... You make us the children of panthers, freedom riders, and revolutionaries. You raise up generations that tear down walls and pave new roads with those broken stones. You inspire us to love our skin, our hair, our souls, and selves down to our bones. Because as mothers, you show us the face of love. From every child of streets and fields, from every black child of many mothers, we love you, and we will get all of us free. Okay, that's it for us this week on The Stakes. We'll be back next week with more. I'm Holly Anderson. Thanks for listening. The Stakes is a production of the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV News and at MTV Podcasts. You can subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.